Joseph's greatest test. Joseph's greatest um, test. I, I mentioned this last Sunday as we were getting ready to leave. I kind of gave you a, a brief preview that, you know, we've, we've been in Genesis for a while. We've been watching Joseph. We've been watching him go through all these different things. He's, he's sold into slavery. He's thrown into a pit. He's, he's accused falsely of rape. He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten about in prison. Just all of this stuff. And I really thought that those were his greatest tests. But I realized as I got to this chapter this week that I was, that I was wrong, that those aren't his, actually his greatest tests. Um, I gave you this quote last week. Abraham Lincoln said this, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. If you really want to test a man's character, give him power. And that is the test that Joseph is going to face uh, in this chapter. Here, we saw last week, he has been elevated to the second in command. He's the vice president of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh has basically given him unlimited power, and his brothers are going to come to him, and his brothers are destitute. Uh, they are desperate. Uh, they, are, they need food, and Joseph, they come to him, and he has all the, the power. So he's got an opportunity. If he wants revenge, he can take it. If he wants to kill him, he can do it. It's really, he can do anything he wants to do. And that's why we call this his greatest test. Let's begin reading in verses 1 and 2. Genesis 42, 1 and 2. It says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? I, I love that. Have you ever said that? Why are y'all standing around looking at each other? That's what he says. Why are y'all standing around looking at one another? Verse 2, and he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. Now, you got to understand, for Jacob, Egypt is a neutral word. It's just a country down there. Uh, he hears there's grain, go down and buy some. But you got to understand, for his sons, Egypt, saying the word Egypt is like a bomb going off in their conscience. You see, 20 years earlier, they sold their brother into slavery to a bunch of Ishmaelites who were going where? To Egypt. So when they hear the word Egypt, for them, that equals Joseph. When they hear the word Egypt, that brings up memories. When they, when they, uh, when they hear the word Egypt, that pricks their conscience. So they don't really want to talk about Egypt, right? They definitely don't want to go to Egypt. So I'm sure they've heard this grain in Egypt, just like their father has. And then he's standing around saying, why are y'all looking at one another? Because they don't want to go. What's going on? You're going to try it again? So they don't want to go down to Egypt, right? They, they dread... Can you think about it? You sold your brother into Egypt. Now your dad tells you to go down there. You're, can you imagine that the... Listen, Egypt is full of slaves. They're building the pyramids. They're building roads. Can you imagine going down a road and you look over at a, at a, at a chain gang and one of them is your brother? Can you imagine? I mean, they do not want to go to Egypt. And that's why he says, why do you stand around looking at each other? You've heard the same things uh, that I've heard. You see, it's been 20 years. 20 years. We said it last week. Egypt, uh, Joseph was in 13. He was there in Egypt 13 years before he was elevated to the second in command. Uh, it was seven years of famine. 13 plus 7 is 20. So, And we're already into... I'm sorry, seven years of plenty. So we're already into 
the, the years of famine. So it's been 20 plus years and their conscience has nagged at them all these years. You see, time, I don't know if any of you guys ever had a guilty conscience, but time doesn't get rid of a guilty conscience. You think if enough years go by, I'll forget about this thing, but you never do. Um, and God has a way eventually, when the timing is right, bringing it all uh, back up. For these brothers, that's what this trip is going to do. This trip is going to bring some things, it's going to stir some things up, and, and uh, they're going to have to deal uh, with the sin that they committed over 20 years ago. Verse 3 and 4. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his other brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. So we all know there's 12 sons. Joseph is, they think he's dead. That leaves 11. So 10 of the brothers go down to Egypt and they leave the youngest son, which is Benjamin, which is Joseph's uh, true brother. Now, Jacob is, he was partial to Joseph. And now that Joseph is gone, he just moved his favoritism right over to Rachel's other son, which is uh, Benjamin. So he says, look, y'all 10 go down to Egypt, go buy some grain, but I'm keeping uh, Benjamin here. Now you wonder, well, why did he keep him there? It's not because he's too young. Some people may say, well, he's the youngest son, he wants to, he's probably too young. No, he's in his 20s. Okay, He was born when Joseph left, so he's got to be at least in his 20s. And if you remember back a few chapters ago, Joseph was only 17, and his dad sent him 50 miles away. Y'all remember that? To go after his brother. So it's not because he's too young. So he's keeping him home, not because of that. He's keeping him home because he's partial to him. He's, it's his favorite son. He don't want anything to happen to, uh, to, to little old Benjamin. And so his faith, like, like, listen, Joseph, uh, Jacob, some things never change, right? He was partial to Joseph. Now he's partial. He's, he's, he's always going to have a favorite. If Benjamin there, he'd probably move it to some other kid. That's just the way that he is. Verse 5 and 6. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So Joseph's brothers come, and they come before Joseph, and they all get down on their face, and they bow down to him. Now that ought to ring a bell for us, right? You remember Joseph's dream back in Genesis 37. He had a dream, and he said, I, I had a dream, and there were these sheaves in the field, and your sheaves bowed down to my sheaves, right? So this is the fulfillment of that dream coming to pass right here uh, in this chapter. Verse 7, And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers, and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said, and they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, I need to stop right here. There are, I really struggled with some things in this chapter and the next chapter, to be honest with you. And, and what I struggled with was figuring out Joseph's motives. Trying to figure out why did he do certain things when he did them, okay? For example, why doesn't he just say, hey, it's me. Why didn't he do that? He could have done it right then, couldn't he? I mean, he's got all the power. If he really wants to see his brother Benjamin, he could have thrown them in jail. He could have got a caravan of soldiers and went down there. I mean, he, he could have done anything he wanted to do. Why does he 
do it the way he uh, does it. I don't know. I don't know his motives. He, he speaks roughly to them. Is he, is he mad? I mean, is he, is he trying to get vengeance on them or is he just putting on an act? I, see, we're, we're trying to figure these things out as we go. I don't know a lot. Let me tell you what I do know. He can't trust them, right? The last time he saw them, they, they threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. That was 20 years ago. That was the last time he saw them. He has no clue if they've changed. Are they the same mean-spirited, evil, wicked brothers they were 20 years ago? Are they different? He has no clue. So I think he's kind of being guarded, right? He's saying, okay, I'm going to figure it. Before I just announce myself to them, I'm going to figure out this, this situation. Now, if you read this chapter and the next chapter, and you go read some commentaries, a lot of commentators act like Joseph had some kind of master plan to bring his brothers to repentance. Joseph did this because he wanted his brothers to... But I, that's not the way life is, is it? We can't see the future. We don't, we don't have these masters. A lot of times, we're just, we, I think Joseph is a lot like us. We do the best we can in the moment, don't we? That's all we can do. We, we can only see the next step. And we take that step, and then there's another step. That's life. We, 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 we use wisdom, we, we, we follow Scripture, we do the very best we can in the moment. But we, most of us have no great master plan, right? We're just doing the very best we can. And I think Joseph is just like us. In the moment, he thought it was best to, to disguise himself. In the moment, he thought this is the best thing to, to do. So, and, I, and again... I don't know why. Maybe, as I said, maybe he's wanting to kind of test them and see who they really are before he uh, reveals himself to them. But the Bible just doesn't tell us a lot about his motives. It just tells us what he did. Now, let me also say this, though. I may not know what Joseph's motives are, but I know what God's motives are. God wants to bring these boys to repentance. God wants to reveal their sin to them. We always, we've said, we know Joseph eventually is going to say to them, God meant, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good. Right? He, I know what God, God wants all to come to repentance, doesn't he? So I know what God is doing, we can see him working, I'm just not sure how Joseph's, some of his motives work out in all of this. Verse 8, it says this, And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now, you know me, I want to ask questions. How is it that he can recognize them but they cannot recognize him. Well, it's pretty simple. First of all, 20 plus years have passed. We mentioned that earlier. 13 in Egypt, plus seven years of plenty, plus some unknown number, probably at least one year of famine has gone by. So we'll say 21 years have gone by. Last time they saw Joseph, he was 17. Now he's 38. There's a big difference between a 17-year-old boy and a 38-year-old man. They don't recognize him. Now, but there's more than that. Remember, he's clean-shaven. Y'all remember that? When he came before Pharaoh, the, the, the Pharaoh, Egyptians didn't like beards, so he's clean-shaven. He's dressed in Egyptian clothing, and as we see in a few minutes, he's speaking the Egyptian language using an interpreter. So he's not speaking Hebrew to them. So here's this guy who's the vice president of Egypt, they haven't seen him in, in 21 years. He's clean-shaven. He's dressed in Egyptian clothes. He's speaking the Egyptian language. And don't forget, in their mind, their brother is either a slave or dead. Even if they thought, one of them thought, you know what, that guy really kind of bears, doesn't he, doesn't he look a little bit like Joseph? 
nah, Joseph's dead. Joseph's asleep. Right? I mean, in their mind, they wouldn't even, it, it, they wouldn't even consider the possibility. So to them, they just they have no clue who this, who this guy is. Verse 9. And it says, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Now, this is a very succinct statement, a very concise statement, but there is a whole lot of meaning, I believe, behind that statement. In, in one way, Joseph remembers his dream. He remembers the sheaves bowing down to his sheaves. And he sees his brothers bowing down. He's probably sitting up on some kind of chair or throne kind of thing, and they're bowing down at his feet. He remembers, man, this is that dream. This is exactly like my dream. But I think this statement means more than that. I think not only now does he realize this is the fulfillment of the dream, but now he recognizes the reason behind those dreams. You see, Joseph has been elevated to this great power. He's been given this privilege and prosperity and all of, I mean, just just a ton of power. But now he sees that the reason God has given him this power is to save his family. I mean, I think the light bulb just goes on. Oh, this is what's been going on. I'm here for a reason. I'm here to protect my family. I'm here to preserve the nation of, of Israel. Now, I want to stop here for just one moment because there's a real lesson here for us. Do you guys, in fact, I was having a conversation with somebody here. Do you guys realize that if you want to, you can make the Bible mean anything you want to? Hey, sweetie. Do y'all realize that? Do you understand you can reach in and grab a scripture and you can make that scripture pretty much mean anything? You're seeing it all over the place. Just read the news. Okay? Whether we like it or not, this is true. Okay? We'll let her sit back down so y'all can focus back up here. So whether or not we realize it or not, that's true. You can twist Scripture to make it mean anything you want it to mean. And and as I said, we see it happening all around us. I want you to think about Joseph for one moment. He's had a dream, which is a word from God or a revelation from God, yes? He's sitting there on that throne and his brothers come in and they bow down to him. And he remembers that dream. And now he could say in his mind, Oh, this is what it's all about. This is about my revenge. God is showing me that one day he was going to bring my brothers and now I can take revenge on them. Are you with me? You see, if he had been dominated by bitterness in his heart, if, if he had, had had anger and bitterness in his heart, he could have taken the Word of God and he could have made it mean anything he wanted it to mean. Yes? See, the lesson for us is the state of your heart goes a long way when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Let me say it again. The state of your heart goes a long way when it comes to opening that Bible and interpreting Scripture. You see, a carnal heart and a carnal mind can always justify its actions. We see it going on. We were talking there, this morning to somebody who knows somebody who is a homosexual, married to the, someone of the same sex, and they lead a Bible study. How is that possible? That's how it's possible. A carnal heart and a carnal mind can twist Scripture and make it mean anything we want it to mean. And by the way, it will always be at the expense of very clear passages that tell you what you're doing is wrong. You can twist this one, but over here, there's gonna, you're going to set that one aside because it just sets, it's, it's sitting there like a blinking light saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, 
you're wrong, you're wrong, and you just move that aside. See, your heart, the state of your heart, that's why it's so important for us, and Scripture teaches us to have a humble heart, to have a teachable heart, to have a forgiving heart, to have a kind heart. Because then we can come to Scripture and we're ready to receive it for what it, the Holy Spirit is ready to teach us and we're ready to receive it as it really is. But you've got an angry heart, a bitter heart, a jealous heart. You can take Scripture and twist it to mean anything you want to mean. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a compliment to Joseph that he's able to interpret that dream correctly. It's not about revenge. It's about provision and protection for his family. Verses 9 through 14. It says, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. We are all sons of one man, and we are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. Now again, I don't know why he's doing what he's doing, right? I don't know why he's being so guarded. But one thing is clear, he's gotten a lot of information out of them that he might not otherwise have gotten. Because they're a little fearful right now because he's speaking roughly to them. He's saying, you're spies, and they're just, they're just throwing up information. In fact, when they get back to their father, the father said, why did you run your mouth? That's literally what their daddy... Why did you tell him all that information? Because they were petrified. Okay, So now he knows that Benjamin is alive because they've told him, and he wants to see him. Verses 15 to 17. He says, okay, by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested where there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Verse 17. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Now again, why, why did he put them in jail for three days? He could have easily just said, okay, I'm going to throw nine of you in jail, one of you go back, because that's what he said he was going to do. But he puts all of them in jail for, for, three days, for three days. Now, was it so they could feel what it was like being in prison? Like he was in prison for over two years? Maybe. I don't know. Again, it, the Bible doesn't tell us. It just says that he did this. Now, I can tell you, knowing them... They're in prison, they're arguing over who's going to go, right? I mean, they're because they're, they're out for one another, right? No, it's going to be you. No, I'd be the best one to go. But I can tell you something that did happen while they were in there. Their consciences began to stir. Maybe they didn't really think about what they had done to Joseph, but now that they're in prison in Egypt, the same place their brother, now they're, they're beginning to realize this is probably what it was like for our brother. Their consciences are beginning to be stirred. Look at verses 18 and 20, and I'll show you what I mean. It says, On the third day, so he calls them out of prison, and Joseph says to them, to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. So Joseph, remember, he's kind of had a change of heart. 
Because he, he first he said, I'm going to send one of you back and the rest of you stay here. Now he, he starts thinking about that over three days. And he says, you know what, they, they need to carry grain back. I'm going to keep one of them. The rest of them can load up their grain on their, on their donkeys and, and carry that back. Verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And the words, and they did so, in Hebrew basically means they agree. So this is the agreement. We're going to go back. We're going to get our brother, and we're going to come back and bring him back here to verify the fact that we are not spies. And so they agreed to the terms that Joseph had laid down. Verse 21 to 23. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has... Do you see their conscience? See their conscience? This is why this is happening. Man, we... We heard our brother crying out to us while he was in that pit, begging us, begging us not to do what we did. We heard that and we didn't listen. That's why this is happening to us. 22. And Reuben said, I told you not to do it. There's always one of them, right? That's the, I I told you. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And they did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. So they're in the room, and they're all over there huddled up talking, trying, and you know, they're thinking, okay, we've got to figure out who's going to go. I mean, who's going to stay, and the rest are going to go. And, and Joseph can hear everything they're saying. So, so they, again, they haven't given much thought to what it means to be a captive like their brothers, but that three days in prison, that three days there, kind of... It, it really, their conscience began to really bring up what they had done those 20-something years ago. You see, for 20 years, they've just pushed that sin under a rug. And they've just pretended. There's not a reckoning. There's not a reckoning. But in that dungeon, they've, it's like it just all comes to the top and they realize, you know what? It is a reckoning. This is happening because of what we did. Verse 24 It says, then Joseph turned away from them and he wept. You see, Joseph's heart is not one of anger. It's not one of bitterness. You remember what he named his children? His first one uh, was, uh, was it Manassas? I can't remember now. Ephraim. One of them meant fruitful, but the other one means to forget, right? I've forgotten. I've moved past that, right? So he's not bitter. He's not angry. He still loves his brothers and he loves his family. And, he, and as he hears them going over and talking about all this stuff, he literally has to turn away from them and he begins to cry. He doesn't want to see them. He doesn't want them to see him crying. He loves his brothers and he loves his family. So again, he doesn't want them to discover him, so he literally has to, to turn away, leave their presence for a time to control himself before he comes back into the room. Verse 24. And he returned to them and he spoke to them and he took Simeon from them and he bound him before their eyes. Now, why Simeon? Simeon is the second oldest, by the way. It's not Reuben. So why Simeon? Again, we don't know. Could it be that Joseph heard Reuben say, Hey, I told you not to do that. I tried to convince you. Could it be another? Could it be the boys all voted and none of them like Simeon? Could be. Could it be that when Joseph was in that pit, you remember Reuben left when they sold him, and Simeon would have been as second in, uh, as second in line. He would have been in charge and responsible for what happened. 
Could it be that? Maybe. Again, we just don't know. It don't tell. It doesn't tell us. It just tells us that Simeon is the one. Verse twenty-five to twenty-eight. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and replace every man's money in his sack and give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And one of them, so they're out there on the road, they're camping or wherever, and one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at his lodging place, and he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So Joseph says, what he does, he says he's got these big grain bags, right, that he, they're taking back to their families, and they've got a separate sack for their provisions. And he says, put the money in the sack with the grain. Yeah, the big grain sacks, because they're probably not going to check that until they get all the way back home. But one of the brothers, when they stop overnight, goes into that grain sack to get some, some feed out for the donkeys, and he discovers his, uh, his money, Okay. Um, and so it's kind of inadvertent. They kind of discover it before they get home, and they are absolutely uh, terrified. You see, they've got every intention of going back to Egypt, right? They agreed to come back, and now they're thinking, man, when we come back, we're in huge trouble because the money we paid for it has been put back. They don't know how. They don't know why. They just, it, it scared them uh, to death. Now, again, why would Joseph do this? I have no clue. I just can't figure, it's just not enough information there to tell you definitively. Could it be a test? So that when they come back, they say, hey, here's the money. Could it be a test? Could it be that, that, Jake, that Joseph just wants to provide for them freely? Again, we don't know. All we know is what he did. Verse 29 to 35. When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying... The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we're honest men, we've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father, one is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother back to me, then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. I always find it very interesting... We've said this multiple times. We're all going to go through adversity in this life, yes? We're all going to experience pain. We're all going to experience suffering. We're all going to have some kind of adversity. It always is interesting to me how people respond and who they blame. They always blame somebody, right? You see, for Joseph, he understood. He's now realized all the stuff that's happened to me is God. God has been in control. God is sovereign. God is providential. So he knows the Lord loves me, but he's seen fit for me to go through these things because he wants to save my family. So he doesn't blame God. Now, he, he knows God is responsible, but there's no blame that goes on there. The brothers, by the way, as soon as they found that money, who did they blame? God. Well, look what God has done to us. 
God's done this to us. And by the way, Jacob, who does he blame? You stupid boys. Look what you did. He didn't even blame God, he which is really pretty bad. He doesn't even see, at least the boys see the hand of God. Jacob doesn't even see it. It's, it's you. All this, it's like fate. It's just the fickle hand of fate that's done this to, to, to me. And that's really sad that he cannot see the hand of God for good or for bad in all of this. He doesn't see it. You see, Jacob, by the way, is in a far different spiritual place than his son Joseph. It's no wonder that Joseph has to be elevated to save this family because he's far and above, above his father. He sees the hand of God mercifully and providentially working. Jacob doesn't see it at all. There's another, if you wonder about Jacob's state, there's another clue as to his spiritual breakdown or the, spiritual, the lack of spiritual maturity. And that is, is he, he does not want to send Benjamin to, to Egypt. In fact, Reuben goes out of his way, you'll see in the next verse, to try to convince him to send him. Look at verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. So Reuben's like, we got to go back. I'll take responsibility. In fact, if I don't bring him back to you, Daddy, you can kill my two, my two, your two grandsons. You can kill my two boys. I mean, he goes, I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? And Jacob still can't be convinced. He, he won't even take a chance on losing Benjamin. Look at verse 38. But he said, my son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he's the only one left. And if harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you, it, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol or to the grave. You see, Jacob's sitting there, and he don't think, I, I can't live without Benjamin. I can't lose another son. This is my... I mean, I don't know how the other boys feel. <laughs> but they got to feel terrible, right? Man, hello, we're here. You see, here's this, there's a test going on. I don't know if you see it or not. Allowing Benjamin to go down to Egypt is the only way he's going to save his family and fulfill the, uh, God's promises to Abraham. You see, this should, be very, this should be very similar to us and remind us of someone. See, there was another man that had a son that he loved very much, his only son. That man's name was Abraham. And God called him to say, let Isaac go, give me Isaac. And he was willing. And God said, because you've done this thing, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to fulfill my promises to you. And here's his, Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And Jacob needs to give up his son to save the nation, to fulfill God's promises, and he won't let him go. See, that shows his spiritual state. That shows where he is with his faith in God. The very thing that Jacob thinks will destroy him is actually the very thing that's going to save him it just reminds me how blind we are sometimes to the working of God, especially when it comes to something that we love. We just want to hold on to it. Can't bear to give it up. And God's saying, let it go and find life. Let it go and find fulfillment. Let it go and find salvation. I want to close this morning and talk a little bit about power. A lesson, there's a lesson in here for us in power. Now, when I say that, I thought, you know, when I say that, the first thought they're going to have was, well, we don't have power. And, and it's true that I doubt any one of us is ever going to become vice president of the United States. Maybe, 
maybe some of these young people might grow up to be VP, but more than likely, none of us are going to have great political power. But we all have power of some type in our lives, because power comes in a lot of different ways. Let me give you a few examples. The first one is what I call positional power. Now, Joseph had positional power as the vice president of Egypt, yes? And positional power comes in a lot of ways. In the military, you have ranks. And so a sergeant has positional power over a private, right? A general over a captain. We see it in our, in our workplaces. We have employers and employees. We have supervisors and subordinates. We see it in our schools where you have teachers and students. We see it in our home where you have parents and children. You see, if you're a parent, you're an employer, you're a, you're a, a teacher, we all have power of some sort over those that are under our authority. Now, keep in mind, positional power has nothing to do with your character. A mother or a sergeant can be rotten people, okay? They're in authority because of their position, not because they're any sort of, uh, of good person, okay? The next, so that's one type of power. That, so if you're an employer, you're a teacher, you're a parent here, you've got power. Another type of power is what I call situational power. Circumstances sometimes have a way of putting power in your hand. We saw that in this story. Joseph's brothers, they, are, they come to him because they're in dire circumstances, yes? They come to him because they're hungry and they need food, and therefore they, they come to him. This is what we call situational power. They had no other choice, and he could have done whatever he wanted to do with them. See, many people, I think, fail to appreciate that comes to us in our life from time to time. There are people in our families and the people that know us that get in dire situations and they have to come to us for help. And that gives you power. What are you going to do in that case? A lot of people say, wow, look at this opportunity. I can really, I got an advantage here, right? Is that the way we're supposed to, to do it? I go back to the Old Testament. I did a little research in the Old Testament and, and how God tells us to cr- uh, treat uh, uh, poor people. If you go back to the Old Testament, go read Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. I'm going to give you a few things. Did you know that the Jews could not charge interest to poor people? In other words, don't take advantage of the situation. Have you noticed we do the exact opposite? The poorer you are, the higher your interest rates are in this country. God said don't charge them any interest at all. In other words, don't take advantage of your situational power. He, he tells us to be generous with poor people. In Deuteronomy 15, if, they, if a poor person has a debt or anything to you, after seven years, you forgive it. In seven years, it's over, right? Debt's canceled. If somebody had to sell themselves in the Old Testament into slavery in order to pay a debt, after seven years, let them go. And if you got any property through, if you had to, uh, there was some kind of exchange of property or something, after 50 years, it goes back to the original owner. The whole point is, don't take advantage of dire situations. Don't take advantage of your situational uh, power. The third type of power, that, so there's positional power, there's situational power, and there's, there's what I call psychological power, and we all got this, okay? It doesn't matter who you are, you use, there's a psychological power that we use to bend people to our will. By the way, this starts very early, right? Why do you think kids throw, toddlers throw fits? What do you think they're trying to do? They're trying to bend you to their will. 
I will make you do this. We learn very early, very early, how to bend people to our will. Parents, parents can do this all the time, right? We do it through reward punishment, right? We try, and, and, and not say, I'm not saying it's all wrong, but there's psychological power that we use. Men can do this with their wives. They can be very aggressive and very assertive and get their way. Yes? Women, all right, I'm not going to go down that road, okay? Let's just say they are skilled in certain things. Okay, Uh, like I said, spiritual leaders. By the way, you think, well, that's all out there. Spiritual leaders, put it this way. You ever heard something like this? You know, I've been praying about this for two months, and the Lord just puts you on my mind to teach that Sunday school class. Yes? See, even as a spiritual, we can, we can use our little ways to bend people to our will. Is that how God wants us to use our power? I want to give one closing thought here. Power is like money. It's neither good nor bad. Money is completely... It's not good or bad. It's how you use money that makes it good or bad. Itself, it's completely neutral. Power is the exact same way. It's completely neutral. It's how you use power that makes it right or wrong, good or bad, um, uh, right or, or evil. I'll give you a couple of biblical principles on the use of power. Number one, whatever kind of power you got, it comes from God. In other words, you are a, your money comes from God and you are a steward of that money. Any power you've got, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're an employer, whatever kind of power you've got under those under you, that is, comes from God and you are a steward of that power. So the first step toward the correct use of power is to remember its source. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you somehow earned it on your own? Remember where it comes from and use it wisely. The second biblical principle about power is this, and this is the most important one. Its use is always to serve. Its use is always to serve. I'm going to give you two scriptures, one from the old, one from the new. This is Ezekiel 34, 1 through 4. This is the prophet Ezekiel speaking to the leaders of of Israel. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Are you using the power for yourself or are you using it for others? Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and severity you have dominated them. See, they were using their power for themselves, and God says, woe to you. Woe to you for what you're doing. The second scripture is Matthew 23. The words of Jesus says this, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes, the scribes and the Pharisees, they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. There it is again. They've got power, and they say, it's all being used. Look at me. It's all about me. 
Jesus said this, But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Those are, again, we've all got some source of power in this life. We're not going to be, we may not be great political uh, players on the world stage, but in our homes, on our jobs, in our churches, we are leaders. We have some type of power, every single one of us. How are we going to use it? Are we going to use it to dominate people? Are we going to use it to, to, to build up ourselves to get what we want? Or are we going to use it to serve? See, Jesus said it very clearly. You want to be great? It all goes back to Pastor Henry's sermon. Wasn't that a great sermon uh, last week about the upside, living in an upside-down world? You want to be great in this world? You want to have power in this world? Use it to serve. That's the power that God uh, recognizes. Next week, we turn to Genesis 43. This week, we looked at uh, Joseph's greatest test. Next week, we'll look at the testing of the brothers. Let's pray.